0: All right, so I am excited to teach through Mark. It's a a good book, and hopefully this will be a a good class. Um, Today, we're going to be going through uh, a bigger picture, more than just the the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at um, all four Gospels. Now, out of all four Gospels, what do you guys think is unique to the Gospel of Mark? What is different or distinct about Mark and his Gospel?
1: That's what I was going
0: to say. Jerry, you stole Joseph's thunder. Sorry. (laughs) All right. Yes, it is indeed the the shortest gospel. And we're going to go over and we're going to look at other unique identifying factors. But because Mark is the shortest gospel, I think it's imperative that we uh, supplement with some of the other gospels. So we will be doing that throughout our study. We're going to be not just exclusively looking at the gospel of Mark. We'll be dipping into Matthew and Luke and John as well. Uh, to help supplement uh, the, the short aspect of, of the book of Mark. Um, and so before we do that, like I said, I want to look at all four Gospels and get kind of a, a glimpse, of, a brief overview of where they're coming from, where they're who they're writing to, and their emphasis on their writing. But even before that, I want to zoom out quite a bit farther and look at... Revelation, and look at how God reveals himself. God reveals himself to man in two ways through general revelation, right? Um, and anybody have an idea of how God reveals himself to us generally? Where would you go in the Bible to show that God reveals himself to us in a, a general way? That God has made himself known to mankind. Genesis. Genesis, good. Genesis. What did you say? Romans one. Romans one. All right. Good. good. Five, six, and seven. Six, the, and the Beatitudes.
2: The the and the
0: yes. The the Amen. Good indeed. All right. Well, I have a, a few references here, and Romans one is one of them. Romans one nineteen and twenty. Uh, says that whatever may be known about God is plain to us because God has made it plain to us for since the beginning of the world He has revealed Himself through His creation. Uh, we can see, we can just look out and, and know that there is a God and because of that we are without excuse. Uh, later on in Romans 2, 14 and 15 it talks about again, how we are without excuse, how God has made himself known to us even within ourselves and our conscience bears witness of the fact that there is a God. Uh, could I get a uh, volunteer to read those other two passages, Psalm 19 and then Acts 14? Who can grab those for us? All right, Jerry, you got Psalm 19? All right. Are you going to open up your Bible? or No. <laughs> you don't have to. Jerry is brilliant. He's got so much Scripture memorized, I'm jealous. And he's got Acts 14 for us. Alright, Joseph. Alright, Jerry, whenever you're ready, Psalm 19, 1-4. Again, we're looking at how God has revealed Himself to all of mankind in a very general, very uh, generic type of way.
2: The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse Declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no word, words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, etc.,
0: etc., etc., etc. All right. Um, Acts 14. You got that for us, Joseph? Acts 14, 17.
1: says, And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you uh, rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness.
0: All right. So these simple things in life, they are a witness, a testimony of the fact that there is a God, that there is somebody who is providing for us, somebody who is over us, that we are subject and inferior to. Now, this general revelation, is this enough for salvation, enough to to be saved? No, it's not right. It's enough to condemn us. It's not enough to save us. It's not enough to know about Jesus. We can't look out at the mountains. We can't look at the beautiful lake and see, okay, well, there was a man named Jesus, and he is fully God, fully man. He died for us, and uh, he was resurrected again. If we put our faith in him, we go to heaven, right? That's not written on the sky. Uh, What is written on on the sky is the fact that there is a creator, that there is a designer, that there is somebody who is bigger than us, who is outside of us, and we are uh, inferior to him. So, what is the, the second way that God reveals himself? We have general revelation and what? Special revelation. All right. Special revelation um, is personal, right? God has revealed himself to us um, through his word in a very special way. Thank you, Andy. Um, in a way that is unattainable by just looking at in a way that's not written on our hearts like we see in Romans two fourteen and 15. Uh, God has revealed himself in a, a saving way, in a way that we can know him that can result in salvation from sin. We have a, a few verses here for that. Uh, 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17. Um, can somebody grab that one for us? And then Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Who can grab that? All right. Andy's got Hebrews. Who's got 2 Timothy 3? All right, I will grab 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. And I should have this one memorized, but I'm not there today. (laughs) All right, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. And Paul here says... Uh, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. So God has revealed himself through scripture and all that scripture is uh, it's not just there, it's not just something we put up on our shelf, but it's useful, it's profitable for teaching rebuke, and correcting and training, in righteousness. And Hebrews one one through three, what's that say, Andy? It
1: says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels
0: as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. That's a beautiful passage that Jesus is superior to the angels, that he not only came and made salvation available for us. But after doing that, he sat down at the right hand of God. Again, that's something that we can't get from just general revelation, right? We don't just wake up knowing that within our hearts without somebody proclaiming that truth to us, without opening up a Bible and being able to see that special revelation revealed to us from God. So God reveals himself to us uh, both generally and in a special sense. Uh, We know that prophecy never had its origin in the will of men that men had just decided, I'm going to write this down one day. But prophecy came about from God as holy men uh, wrote, as the Holy Spirit carried them along and taught them how to write. He was... Uh, he was uh, there are two authors, right? The other class, they're going to be learning this over a period of weeks. We're just really flying over this, talking about how there's a divine author, the Holy Spirit, and there's a human author. And they are um, both working to to produce what we know as the Bible, right? The 66 books of the Bible, and uh, particularly the four Gospels that we're going to be looking at. So why is it that we have the the four Gospels that we do? Have You guys ever contemplated that, ever wondered? Why only four Gospels? Uh, what about the Gospel of James or Thomas or Philip or Mary or Judas or uh, Matthias or Nicodemus? Why don't we have those in our Bible? And Brittany was just telling me this morning that she was talking to somebody in Walmart yesterday and said... Uh, well, we're missing the book of Enoch from our Bible. And she said, well, you should you should come to church and talk to us about that later because there are lots of people who like to talk about that. Um, and we do. Those are good important questions. Um, but do you have any thoughts? Why why only the four Gospels? Why not more? We
1: know
0: those are inspired. Okay. Yeah, we've yet said that those are inspired. How do we know that those are the only four that are inspired and that the Gospel of Thomas is not inspired. does it uh,
2: match the rest of the Bible doctrine as well as when it was written.
1: Right?
0: Yes, good. Yeah, the time period in which it was written and uh, its correspondence to the rest of Scripture. Andy, do you have something to add?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the four Gospels were written either by apostles or they were, take, they were taken down from the apostles by immense
0: Emanuensis. Yeah, I, I don't know what the plural is of that. Emanuens I? Yeah. Um, yes, by scribes, right? We'll we'll stick with that. Yeah. Good. Um, so there are tests for canonicity, right? To determine what goes into the canon. Canon just means rule or standard. Um, this you're I'm pretty hot, dude. Can you turn me down? Alright. Um, It doesn't look like you turned me up. I don't know why that happened all of a sudden. Um, So the the test for a canon uh, to see what is matching up with the standard or the rule of what is um, acceptable, what we recognize as inspired. So yeah, Joseph, you're right that those are the four that are inspired. And they're not inspired because we recognize them as inspired, but we uh, want to make sure that we have the the right books that are inspired. And so tests for canonicity include authorship of an eyewitness of Christ and conformity to known scripture. And as you mentioned, uh, either an apostle himself or somebody who has uh, direct access to an apostle, as we'll see, two of the disciples do, or two of the authors of the gospels do. All right, and uh, the Gnostic gospels were written after the first century. So to your point, Sarah, um, the the timing of when they were written. So we can divide the early church into... um, orthodox christianity that which lines up with correct teaching with straight teaching and then gnostic quote-unquote christianity which uh looks for this this higher knowledge for the second knowledge we spent the last few weeks when we were in church history talking about um gnostics and uh, some of their beliefs and how they look for something that's not in line with with scripture necessarily um, if you are interested you can look up some of that stuff J. Warner Wallace if you guys are familiar with him on his website uh, Cold Case Christianity he has a good article uh, a thorough guide to non-canonical gospels and that will go through each one of these uh, Gnostic gospels or non-canonical gospels um, and it will uh, debunk these <coughs> pseudo these these extra gospels for us alright so looking at these four Gospels, uh, we need to ask ourselves, what are the Gospels? The word Gospel, uh, euangelion in the Greek, means good news or a a good report of a special event. Now, when we're looking at these Gospels, we need to realize a a few things. First of all, they are not biographical, not simply biographical. So uh, a couple of them will focus on some early years of Christ, right, on his birth, but not all of them focus on his birth. We see in Mark that we just kind of jump right in. And John, he goes back even farther, and he says, well, in the beginning was a word. Uh, he doesn't talk about his, his birth, he talks about the very beginning. And then they will focus primarily on his three years of ministry, and then very, uh, they'll get very narrowed, and focus a lot on the last week of his, his life on earth. And so it's not a uh, an even biography of the life of Christ. Uh, they're not simply journalistic. It's not um, just somebody writing down. They had a, a purpose in writing what they did right, and it's not all chronological either. So we need to keep that in mind. That as we're going through these Gospels, um, they, they're going to vary in how chronological they are. Mark and Luke are more chronological than Matthew, who tends to be more thematic. And it could be argued that John is uh, the most rigidly chronological, but I don't think all of them are uh, specific in their their chronology of events, saying this is what happened at the beginning and this is what happened at the end. They're writing with a a purpose and a meaning. And we can't take our modern-day understanding and try to project that onto a completely different culture, completely different style of writing. We need to remember that they are writing in antiquity and they have different writing styles and expectations and reasons for which they're writing. And uh, we see that they, in the Gospels, the Gospels themselves are proclaiming the message of the Gospel, but they're distinct from the Gospel. So we just need to keep that in mind as well. All right, well, let's take a look at the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was authored by Levi. Um, Levi, also called Matthew, right? Um, And his name means the gift of the Lord. And what was Levi's profession? What did he do for work? He was a tax collector, right? We can see that in a couple of places. We see that in Luke 5.27. Could I get somebody to look that up for us? Luke 5.27, who's got that? All right, Jerry, and I'm going to grab Matthew nine, 9 we'll see Matthew is a, a tax collector. So Luke 5.27.28, when you're ready, Jerry.
2: After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up. All
0: right. And over in Matthew's gospel, his own account of himself, he it's interesting that he doesn't overshadow this, but he recognizes himself that he's a tax collector. He says, as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Uh, remember Luke's account called him Levi, but he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And so most people believe that uh, Matthew kind of got a new name, just says uh, Paul did, or as Abraham did, that in coming to Christ, Jesus changed his name. No longer are you Levi, but you're Matthew, just like he said to, to Peter. You're not you're not Simon, but you're Peter. You're the rock, right? Uh, and it's interesting that Matthew uses his new name of himself whenever he's talking about himself, but other authors, when they're talking about his, his past life, his sinful life, they use the name Levi, uh, but Matthew doesn't uh, identify with that. He identifies with his name that is in Christ, which I think is pretty pretty sweet. Um, let's see. And Matthew is writing to who? The Jews. Jews. Alright. You guys know these things. Good. A lot of this is just review. He's writing to the, the Jewish people. Um, we see in his first chapter that his genealogy goes back not to to Adam, but it goes back to Abraham, to the founder of the Jews, the the father of the the Jewish race. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament over 60 different times um, from different prophetic passages, and he alludes to it nearly 130 times, which is far more than any of the other gospel writers. So he's definitely writing to the Jews. He has a Jewish slant to his writing. Um, In... Matthew two, seventeen and eighteen, he even points out the fact that he's fulfilling or he's writing about fulfilled prophecy. Uh Matthew two seventeen and eighteen is talking about Herod killing the children. Um and he says that that was that what, what that was what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Uh, so he's pointing back and he's saying that this is to, to fulfill prophecy, and he uses that term nine different times in his gospel to, again, draw these connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament in a good, godly way. Like, last week we talked about uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen, how they were uh, crossing the line in doing that and making those connections. Uh, but Matthew is making those connections in a, a proper way, uh, again, using that term um, that it might be fulfilled. This term that is unique to Matthew that the other gospel writers don't use at all. Uh, Matthew references all kinds of Jewish customs without any explanation. Uh, for example, in Matthew 15:2, it says, why do your disciples transgress the, trans- the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And then the very next verse just says that Jesus answered them. And it goes on to explain how Jesus answered them. But Mark, for example, when he's uh, telling the same account, it says in Mark 7, verse 3, that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. So Mark, because he's not writing to the Jews, he has to go in, he has to explain the the custom and the background a little bit. But Matthew, he's writing to Jews, they already know the customs, they already know the background, so he just proceeds without explanation. Uh, Ten times in his gospel, Matthew calls Jesus the son of David. uh, And that only takes place three times between both Mark and Luke. So he's really emphasizing the fact that Jesus is king, that he is the son of David. Uh, He speaks of the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God, because he's writing to the Jewish people who hold the name of God in high esteem, and they don't want to use that name uh, flippantly. And so just to err on the side of safety, he calls it the, the kingdom of heaven. He does that over 30 times in his gospel. Uh, He focuses on the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their focus on the law. This is a big focus of of Matthew. He mentions the Sadducees more than any other gospel. And he warns his readers to avoid the leaven of their teaching. So again, it's very Jewish all throughout. Uh, He has a, a certain people that he's writing to, a certain purpose that he's writing with. His purpose is to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. In fact, again, that Jesus is the king that was promised in the Old Testament. Uh, 60% of Matthew's nearly 1,100 verses are words of Jesus. And again, that's going to be quite a bit different from Mark. If you happen to have a, a red-letter Bible, you can look through Mark and you can see, okay, well, maybe 20 30% of the words are from Jesus himself. But Matthew really likes to use the, the words of Christ himself as he's presenting his gospel. Um, we see from Origen, who we just mentioned, just studied last week. He says that among the four gospels, which are the only indisputable ones in the church of God under heaven, I have learned by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was once a publican, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it was prepared for the converts from Judaism. So uh, not only can we grab this uh, understanding the Matthew was writing to Jews from internal evidence, but also external evidence. Church history also supports that as well. And a key verse from Matthew that would be good for us to remember that really kind of summarizes it in Matthew 16:16, 16, 16 uh, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, it was revealed to him from the father that Jesus was indeed the son of the living God. Any thoughts or questions on Matthew? Who was Matthew writing to? The Jews. All right, good. Well, let's go on to Mark. Mark was not writing to the Jews, and we're going to get into Mark uh, quite a bit more, but just a a cursory glance at Mark. Uh, John Mark was the author, and again, we'll talk about him a little bit more next week, but he wasn't super close to Jesus. he took notes from from Peter. He was close to Peter. And so uh, the gospel account is really uh, Peter's account um, as transcribed by Mark. And Mark was writing to Roman Gentile believers. He wasn't writing to um, the Jews. He was writing to Roman believers. Um, He, as we just pointed out before, he, went through the the extra process of saying well this is why the disciples were washing their hands and he would translate aramaic terms and explain true jewish tradition that we don't see matthew doing he goes that extra step because he's writing to people from a a different background a different culture who aren't quite used to some of these customs and he used the the roman system of time when he was writing so we know that he was writing to uh not just gentile believers but roman gentile believers Uh, As we mentioned, it is the the shortest gospel and it may have been written to be memorized and to be spoken out loud. Um, Clement of Alexandria, again, who we studied last week, he says that Mark, the follower of Peter, while Peter publicly preached the gospel at Rome before some of Caesar's knights and adduced many testimonies to Christ in order that thereby they might be able to commit to memory what was spoken. Of what was spoken by Peter, wrote entirely what is called the Gospel according to Mark. So, a lot of people thought Mark was so short so that it could be memorized, it could be committed to memory, which is just uh, convicting to me because that is a, a long book to consider committing to memory. But Clement of Alexandria says, well, that's why it's so short, so that people can memorize it easier. Um, that's, again, convicting because I'm, I'm not there. The, the purpose for which Mark was writing. He was writing to present Jesus as the suffering servant. Um, Mark 10 says that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his purpose in coming. We'll see that all throughout the book. We need to um, realize that now, that as we're going throughout this book, we need to be looking for these different themes, for these different uh, repeated words and phrases That is his purpose, to point out Jesus suffered for sinners. He focuses on the deeds of Jesus rather than his teachings, emphasizes his service and his sacrifice. Uh, Miracles are predominant in Mark. There are 18 different miracles, and this demonstrates his power and his compassion for different people who are suffering, that he really wants to, to help and show that he not only has Uh, compassion for them, but also authority. That's going to be another key word that we're going to see throughout the book of Mark. The authority of Christ is going to be highlighted. Um, We see that he focuses on Jesus' humanity more clearly than than any other author. And then 40% of of what Mark writes takes place within the last eight days of Jesus' life. So he's really focusing on that last aspect of Jesus being that, that suffering servant in the last part of his life. All right, so key words for the book of Mark, suffering servant. Uh, we mentioned authority. And then immediately, as you're reading throughout Mark, you're going to see that word pop up over and over again. Immediately this happened. Immediately this happened. The, the pace for the book of Mark is really fast paced. That's why it's so short. And we see that it's jumping from one scene to... To the next, Papias wrote uh, really early. He lived from around 60 to 130, so he was a contemporary with many of the disciples. And he said that Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, so also that's very early attestation to the fact that Peter was the one who was giving the background for this gospel. He says that he wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, for of one thing he took especial care, not to omit anything that he had heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. And so there's disagreements from church history as to uh, how Mark wrote down the, the words of Peter, if Peter was there or if it was after the death of Peter but across the board, everybody agrees that Mark was writing down the words of Peter. Um, and it was accepted and received as canon as matching the the standard of what it means to be an inspired gospel. A key word for Mark or key, uh, verse is that verse in 10:45. even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many that says for man there, but it's for many, um, Yes, Jesus is the, the suffering servant. So
1: this is the gospel where it's used the phrase of man a lot
0: then. Yeah, there there are a couple of them. I think Luke might use it more than, than Mark. That's the phrase that Jesus used of himself most often. Uh, that was his favorite title for himself. All right, uh, the gospel of Luke. We need to pick it up a little bit. Luke was the physician, right? Um, he was... The, the doctor, the beloved doctor. Uh, he also was close to Paul. And he was writing to Theophilus, right? Most excellent Theophilus. We see that in uh, the very first part of his gospel. Uh, can somebody read that for us? Will you open up to Luke and read for us Luke 1, 1 through 3? Who's got that? Luke 1, 1 through 3. I do. All right, thanks. In as much as many have taken at hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having
1: had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you
0: an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. All right, thank you. So yeah, Luke, the very precise, very careful physician, the historian is going back and he's writing this precise account to most excellent Theophilus so that he can have this understanding. He says that you've already received other accounts. So uh, Luke's written a little bit later, 60 to 62 AD. And uh, he's writing not just to Theophilus, but we think that he's writing to an even broader group of Gentiles. He expected this letter to circulate throughout the Gentiles. Um, We know this because he uses, uh, other authors use Jewish terms like uh, Abba or Hosanna or Rabbi, but Luke either omits these terms altogether or he used Greek equivalents like Calvary versus Golgotha. So he's expecting this letter to circulate throughout um, Gentile regions. And when citing the Old Testament, he uses the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so that they can have that for them. So Luke is writing to Theophilus and also to other Greeks. The purpose for Luke writing is that um, Jesus is the savior of all, right? And Luke 19.10 says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And he wants to get that point across to, to all of his readers, to all of the recipients. Uh, luke speaks often of forgiveness and joy and prayer and quite a bit about the holy spirit he gives a lot of detail about the the healing ministry of jesus um perhaps because he's intrigued by all the the medical aspect of it being a doctor so he uses that word healing and focuses all the healing of christ more than the other authors um He focuses on Jesus' compassion for Gentiles, for Samaritans, tax collectors, sinners, women, children, outcasts. Uh, And Mark, as I mentioned, he is very well educated. He is well studied. He's uh, more or less chronological in his writing. And it's the only gospel with a sequel, right? What is the sequel to Luke? Acts. All right, good. Um, And Luke and Acts combined, they make up, 28% 28% of the New Testament, which is more than Paul's writing. So when we think about Paul, we think, oh, he wrote half the New Testament. Well, he did write quite a bit, but uh, he only wrote 2,033 verses compared to Luke's 2,138 verses. So Luke just barely edges out Paul and uh, has more, more written in the New Testament than Paul himself. All right, uh, Luke... 31, and 32. Uh, We'll look at that in a minute. But um, here's a a list of people that quoted from Luke. Remember, he was really well-written. He was well-respected. So Clement of Rome, Polycarp, um, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Novation. All these people quoted from Luke and respected his writings, respected him as a a historian. um, And yeah, he was... his. Greek is the the highest level Greek that you can read in the New Testament. The only thing that's comparable is Hebrews, which is why some people think that maybe Luke wrote Hebrews, but that's a different story for a different day. All right, so Luke 5, 31 and 32 is a key verse for Luke. It says that Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So right there we see Luke's focus on uh, the, the medical aspect, on this healing, um, talking about a physician as a physician himself, and highlighting the fact that Jesus came for, for those who are needy, for the, the lower class, the underprivileged, right? All right, I've often wondered uh, why, if Luke is the only book with a sequel, with Acts, why Acts doesn't follow immediately after Luke. Why it's not Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, Acts. Any, any ideas as to why that's not the case? <laughs> why does Acts not follow immediately after Luke in the ordering of our Bibles?
1: Because these all talk about when Jesus, during his ministry, right? And then
0: uh-huh.
1: Acts picks up from... Yeah,
0: But John is put after these three. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke first, and then John is separate. John is kind of distinct in there. They didn't just mix John in the middle.: That's right. What's that? Well, John: later.: Yes. Yeah.
2: chronologically I would stick it after
0: that yeah Yeah, and there's something different about John too right John not only did he write later but he has a completely different style of writing he's set apart from these other three authors Matthew Mark and Luke they're known as the synoptic gospels right that term synoptic uh, sin means uh, together like uh, synchronize or what's another sin word Syn- synergy. Syn- synergy, synthetic. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about synthetic, but synergy for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's something that's done together. And then optic, right? Uh, you should know, right, Jim? Optic is to, to see, right? So these are three Gospels that we see together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the synoptic Gospels, and John is set apart from them. So real quickly, let's just highlight some differences between the synoptic Synoptic gospels in John. Uh, The synoptic gospels focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. They contain several parables. They uh, talk about many different demons being cast out in all three of the the synoptics. And it leaves out the resurrection of Lazarus and the farewell discourse in John 13 through 17, where John is really focusing on the... uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how Jesus has that, that high priestly prayer uh, is known as the the farewell discourse. Well, John, by comparison, focuses on Jesus' ministry in Judea. And it is void of parables, it has no demons being cast out, and he leaves out Jesus' temptation and the transfiguration, the institution of the Lord's Supper. So there's quite a bit of difference between uh, the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. Also, um, just the, the very vocabulary, the very language that they use. Um, the, the word life is used by John 36 times. And all three of the other Gospels combined, it's used only 17 times. So John is really focusing on this the life and the importance of life and how we can have life in Christ. Kingdom is used by John only five times. This word kingdom. Uh, Matthew uses it 47 times, just Matthew alone. Mark uses it 18, Luke 37. So they have a completely different focus. They're using completely different words, writing to a completely different audience at a completely different time. Um, There are vast differences between the synoptics and John. Uh, One other interesting distinction, John uses the word I 118 times. And the other three synoptics altogether use it 36, which is... That's just wildly disproportionate. It's unbalanced. Uh, The I am statements are unique to John. So just to give you a a glimpse, I told you that the synoptics focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee and John's focused on his ministry in Judea. Um, I don't know if you can see that, but you can see the the seas on there, right? The Sea of Galilee is up at the top and that's a region of Galilee and Judea is down there by the Dead Sea. And so that's the ministries of, or the focus of Jesus' ministry that the different authors have. All right. Um, Now to the book of John, the unique one that's set apart, not a part of the synoptics. The author of John is the apostle John, the beloved apostle, uh, the the brother of James, son of Zebedee. Um, He and James together, they were called the sons of thunder. Uh, They were part of Jesus' inner circle, Uh, before he followed christ john was a follower of john the baptist he was a a palestinian jew he was one who became uh, a pillar in the church according to galatians 2 paul says that john was one of the pillars of the church so he was in an exalted position a leader in the church it was as jerry mentioned the last gospel written written as late as uh around 90 ad likely um John was writing to everybody, right? John 1.12 says that he who believes, who receives in his name, he has been given the right to become a child of God, whoever believes. Um, John 3.16, right? Talks about um, whoever believes that uh, Jesus died for the sins of the world and that whoever believes in him would uh, receive everlasting life. So he's writing to everybody, and that's lining up really closely with the, the purpose of John. John gives us his, his purpose statement pretty clearly in John 20, 30, and 31. Is that right? Um, he says that m- there are many other works, many other things that Jesus did. And I imagine that if somebody were to try to write all these things, not even the world itself could contain all the writings. But he says, these things I have written to you so that you may believe and that believing you may have life in him. That is his purpose for writing to show that Jesus is God and that we must believe in him. All right. Um, you probably won't have time to write these down, but that's okay. We're not studying John. We're studying Mark. We're just getting a glimpse of John. Uh, John has seven different miracles that he recorded. When he says, these things have been written for you, he's focusing on the seven miracles that he was talking about, or that he had written about. Turning water into wine, healing the official son, healing of the pool, at the pool of Bethesda, feeding of the 5,000, which all four of the gospel writers write about. Walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. All these miracles are to... highlight the fact that Jesus is God, that he is unique, that he is powerful, he can come and he can do all these things and these are for everyone he's not just focusing on Jesus being the the king of the Jews or the savior of a certain group of people, but on the fact that uh, Jesus is God and we must believe we also have the seven I am statements of Jesus found within the book of John All right, and again the key verse for John where he gives his purpose statement very clearly is John 20, verse 30 and 31. Talking about um, all these, these miracles that, that Jesus did and these specific ones he did so that we might have life in him by believing in his name. Any other thoughts or questions on John? John? Uh, because uh, it's not part, or John is not part of the Synoptic Gospels. So, in in my thinking, I was thinking that Matthew, Mark, then John, then Luke, and then you put Acts right after Luke, and that would make sense. But then you disrupt the the Synoptic Gospels, uh, that those would all be put together. And then just put John first. They could. I don't know. <laughs> uh, to, <laughs> to Jerry's point John was written later um, with he, he definitely had a, an understanding of there were other gospels and he knew not only what those gospels were but the the attacks against those gospels and he was writing with a very pointed um, almost defensive apologetic type of writing pointing out the fact that as, as we mentioned in the beginning was the word and the word was with God the word was God uh, we talked about that a couple weeks ago when we were talking about um, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and how they had that kind of philosophical bent. Um, and John was writing with that same kind of purpose, writing that Jesus is God. Um, yeah. Any other questions on John? <laughs> All right. Um, let's go back in. let's walk through these seven I am statements just a little bit. So the first I am statement of, of John writing about Jesus says that uh, Jesus is the bread of life. In chapter 6 verse 35 um, talking about how in him we, we have life. Before that he's talking about uh, manna and he's making some, some comparisons there between manna and how he had um, a, a need for that bread. How the the Hebrews as they were traveling through the wilderness, they uh, had their needs met by the manna and how Jesus came and he is the bread of life, the one who meets our needs. In chapter eight, verse 22, it talks about how he is the light of the world. And again, we see his focus, his emphasis on how salvation is for everyone, not just for the Jew, not just for the Greek, but for everyone. And in chapter 10, we see that uh, John portrays jesus as the gate jesus himself said i am the gate uh, there's only one way into the the gate they had their uh the shepherds that is would have all their sheep uh, with different shepherds put into the same sheep pen so to speak and there was one gate to to get in one legitimate gate and robbers might come and jump over the gate and get in in an illegitimate way, but Jesus says, no, I am the gate. If you want to get into a right relationship with God, if you want to get into heaven, you must come through me. He is very exclusive. That's another unique aspect that we see throughout John, that he is um, exclusive in who he is. We see that in number six. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Uh, we skipped over the the good shepherd in 10, 11 and the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. And then finally in chapter 15, he says that uh, Jesus says, I am the vine and talking about our need to be connected to him. We are the branches. We need to get our, our sustaining life from him. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. We can do nothing apart from Jesus. And that is why um, we're... We're utterly in need of Him, and we need that Savior, and He came to, to save everybody. All right. Uh, got this quote from Irenaeus, who lived in the 2nd the century. He says that Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundation of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So there's all kinds of neat little things that we get in there that perhaps we we wouldn't have pieced together before. But again, church history is um, not scripture, right? It's not inspired. So we hold scripture up as our our preeminent. It is our sole infallible source of authority. And church history is useful and beneficial in helping us to better understand it. And uh, we see the same thing in church history that we see in the pages of scripture, that uh, these are the, the men who authored it uh, going back to our our discussion on canonicity, what is canon? What is um, lining up with the standard of scripture? It needs to be written by somebody who was an apostle or a close associate with apostle. And we see that with both Mark and Luke, they, they meet those requirements. And next week we're going to get in, we're going to look at uh, more of Mark's pedigree, more of his background. We'll see that he really was closely connected with uh, several of the people who were uh, high-ranking in the early church. They were close followers and disciples of Jesus. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty jealous of Mark and the people that he had pouring into his life. It's quite incredible if you think about it. All right. Any other thoughts or questions, not just on John, but on any of these four Gospels that we were looking at and uh, how they might tie into our study of, of Mark?
1: wasn't like one of the 12 apostles right nope
0: but he, he was like an eyewitness of jesus um it's thought that maybe he was there's a a little glimpse in i think it's chapter 14 of mark um it's kind of funny in the garden of gethsemane where some dude runs away naked without a robe uh people think that that was mark writing about himself um just <laughs> uh, probably not no um and uh, we'll get into that more next week, but he was the the cousin of Barnabas, and he studied under uh, Peter and Paul. He was close with both of them, so, but no, he wasn't one of the 12. But remember, Jesus had many more disciples than just the 12, and Luke 10 talks about how Jesus sent out the 70, and that's even just a, a small fraction of his disciples, but He had a a focus, a a more concentrated focus on the 70, and then an even more concentrated focus on the 12, and then beyond that, an even more concentrated focus on uh, Peter, James, and John. They were his inner circle. And so going through Mark and reading the account of Peter, we're really getting a a close view, a close glimpse of uh, the account of somebody who was right there with with Jesus. Peter was there uh, when... Other people weren't. When the, the little girl was being killed, um, Peter was there, and others weren't invited in at the transfiguration. Peter was there. Um, so Peter gave all this, this information to Mark, who wrote it down for us in this gospel, which is pretty cool. And Luke was a Gentile writing to Gentiles. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't of Jewish descent. So that's also unique, kind of interesting. So
1: would it be accurate to say that Mark is brief and meant to be memorized by the Roman believers? This was sort of the... This was the Jewish Messiah going out into the entire world. Mm-hmm. Right, so Ephesus, Corinth, Corinth, all those places, this, this would be meant to uh, show, show Jesus' authority over all men,
0: yes. Right, mm-hmm. and it's kind of interesting because we just got done going through the book of Romans and the study of the Romans, and now we're reading a book that was written to Romans, with their it was expected for them to read and to understand. So, the same Romans that we just got done studying they would have likely been reading this account from mark um, that's how they would have come to know about this jesus that they're uh trying to to figure out and they're getting all this extra doctrine understanding and orthopraxy from uh from paul later on it's kind of cool to think about
1: so it's the gospel for the gentiles just like the romans is a created deep philosophical explanation
0: of who Jesus is for, for the Romans. Yeah. Yep. And All right. Well, I'm going to be bold and courageous and ask you if you're willing to do some homework maybe. Um, I think homework is good. We're only here one hour a week together, and it's good for us to prepare our minds to uh, prime the pump a little bit before we get here. So, um, not necessarily this week, but I think it would be good at some point in the next couple of weeks to read through Mark in one sitting. Because it's so short, and it's written with that focus, again, immediately, 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 all throughout, uh, it's a, a gospel that I think was meant to be read or Listen to in one sitting and in doing that we're going to get different things from it that we wouldn't if we just read one chapter a day or one chapter a week we'll see connections that we wouldn't see otherwise so let's make a a goal for ourselves to read through mark in one sitting and as we do that pay attention to the key words and key themes that are in mark remind me again what are some of the key words or phrases that we see in mark Immediately. immediately what else Yes, good. He's focusing on Jesus as the the suffering servant. And then immediately, and what else? Authority. Authority Authority is a big one. I love that about Mark, seeing how he's talking about how Jesus had authority over the wind and the waves and how he had authority to cast out demons. Uh, He has this authority to to speak. He doesn't speak as the other scribes, but he speaks as one who has authority. That's really a, a central focus of Mark. And then the kingdom of God, um, not unlike the, the other gospels. Mark's really focusing on that. So as we seek to read through Mark in one sitting, let's pay attention to these key words, key phrases, key themes, and uh, see if we can come back and uh, start to tie some of these connections together. And feel free to, to share with the class some of the stuff that you guys are, are learning in your own personal study time. because so we want to benefit from that as well. Any last thoughts or questions before we close in prayer? Alright. God, we thank you again for your gospel. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the many faithful men and women who went before us to uh, to make sure that we can have it in, in our hands today that we can have it in our own language. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who uh, preserved it for us and God that you are are our king you are our lord that you are the suffering servant who cares for the weak for the destitute that the son of man came to seek and to save the lost god we thank you that uh even though we're we're not healthy we need a a healer that you are that healer for us we love you and praise you amen